we'll be talking tonight and tomorrow about how God has designed us and three specific ways that God has designed us tonight. God has designed us, made us male and female. One of the first things we learn in Genesis 1, God made us male and female. We'll talk about that tonight because that is perhaps the most confused topic in our culture today. And so great relevance for us in understanding both uh, God's purpose for us as men, but also because we do relate to women and God's purpose for them as well, and how those two relate together to each other. And then tomorrow morning, we look at God designed us to be workers. Probably most of you, your major part of your life is spent in your, your work. And we go, go, work is more than just your job, though. You have uh, taking care of kids and volunteer work. All that is work. So talk about that. Then we'll, we'll finish by talking about God has designed us for community. I mean, that's why you're here tonight, right? God designed us to need each other, to be encouraged, strengthened by each other. And so you come out and endure a little bit of cold, perhaps, as well, and to be here. So that's where we're going. Now, again, if you have questions along the way, feel free to jump in. In fact, I'll ask some, some participants along the way, but we'll try to reserve some time at the end for Q&A as well. Now, I hope you're, you're able to see that handout. I don't think most of you can unless you use your phone and get some lights there. But again, I'll also be reading the scripture along the way. Uh, so basically, we're talking about three questions tonight. What does it mean that God made us male and female? And then why did God design us male and female, then how should we respond? And both in terms of uh, obeying scripture, but also respond to issues in our contemporary culture, uh, like the LGBTQ community, uh, all those types of things going on. So I hope to be very practical, anticipating some situations you may find yourself in. If a friend says to you, I'm gay, if you're invited to a gay wedding, all these types of things. So I hope that we can uh, prepare ourselves to, to deal with these things together. So first, uh, what did God do when we say we are made male and female? What does that mean to be male and female? What does it mean to be a man, a woman? We have two terms we need to clarify here. One is sex and one is gender. Now, quite often, especially in the past, those two were synonymous. But today we're seeing that more and more we think of sex as those undeniable biological characteristics. And nobody is as confused as what it means to be a man or a woman biologically. In terms of your features, those types, of, that's pretty undeniable and mistakable. But the second term, gender, is more slippery. It can mean some things that, that we associate with being male or female. Some differences that, that go beyond the biological, the physical, some things we associate, and, so, and that's something. Some people associate with, uh, in terms of things like dress and appearance, and, and we usually dress differently and appear differently, and those tend, tend to vary from culture to culture, so some use it that way. But then more recently, there have been some saying gender is your self-perception. That can to things like transgender and those types of things that we'll talk about a little bit later on. But the first idea, that, that beyond biological, are men and women different? So let's ask that question. Uh, how are men and women different from each other? So in your own experience, what have you observed how, how men are different than women? Anybody? The way they process and think about things is different, especially in my situation. My wife, she notices her surroundings much more. So we're driving down the road. She says, oh, that house, they put on new shutters. Yeah. It has shutters? Yeah. 
I don't notice those things. She does, and so she processes that difference. She processes her surroundings more. What else? What are the other differences? Women can be more emotional. Yeah, uh, usually emotional and usually more nurturing. Men a little bit more logical, aggressive, those types of things. Those are some general tendencies. Anything, anything else? They multitask better. So, yeah, I think men tend to get focused on one thing. And so if I'm watching a ball game, I can't have a conversation with my wife. You know, yeah. uh, She might be speaking to a stone. So she can do that. I can't. Yeah. So those are differences. Now, here's the question. Are those things prescribed in Scripture for women? Where the Bible says, women, that shall be emotional, man, that shall be logical. Well, no. And they're more typical than universal. So these are genuinely true, but there are women who are very, very centrally focused that can't multitask. And uh, there's some exceptional men who can multitask. And so these are not universal differences. They're typical. And so some say, well, then they're not really differences. But in my experience, when you relate to men and women, you shouldn't treat them the same. You shouldn't treat your wife like your best male buddy. It won't work out very well. <laughs> and so there needs to be some differences they recognize and say, they're not prescribed by scripture. They're not required. And so if you happen to be a, a man and you're emotional, that's not somehow bad or forbidden by God, those types of things. Uh, but we, we do see these differences. And I like to call these differences, I'll call it a mode of orientation. Women see things through one set of lenses. Themselves, others, God, they were through one set of lenses. Men, a, tip, a slightly different lens. And this is a good thing. Now, some people in our culture, they try to downplay the differences because they say, well, if we're different, that means we're not equal. No, that means we're not identical. We can be equal, but not identical. And the differences are, I think, part of God's design. And a good thing, because they give us a mutually beneficial relationship. You get something more from a relationship with a woman than you do from a relationship with a man, because she sees things. And so you get another way of looking at the world, unless you say, my way or the highway. Well, if you say, my way or your way. Two different ways of seeing the world. So uh, this is uh, what it means to be a male film, not just the biological stuff, I think there's something beyond that that goes deeper than that in terms of a different mode of orientation, seeing things differently. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, so that's the question, what? Second question, why did God make us male and female? Yeah. Well, let's don't overlook the obvious. Uh, procreation. Yeah. All of you got here because men and women cooperated. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't get here through one man or one woman, or even two men or two women. It takes both to do that. And again, interesting, you can uh, maybe look this up later. I'm not sure if you can see your Bibles. But Isaiah 45, 18 says, God made the earth. He did not create it to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. God wants the world to be filled. Not empty space. Uh, so uh, God likes us to have lots of people. And so God made us, male and female, so that we could procreate and get that, that command, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, so a little side note here. Does this mean then uh, that contraceptives are wrong? 
there's a, a group out there you can look on your, your computer, Google it, Quiverful. They say you should enjoy your married life with your wife, enjoy your sex life, and let God be your family planner. Yeah. Enjoy yourself and just trust God and, and let nature take its course. Is that a good way to look at things? Is that a properly trusting attitude toward God? To let God be your family planner. Sounds good, but think about it for a second. Let nature take its course. Well, if we were letting nature take its course, we wouldn't have that fire there. We'd be cold. Yeah. It's raining. We'd be wet. You, know, you may use an umbrella. You're, you're interfering with the course of nature. If you have a headache, take aspirin. Maybe God wants you to have a headache. Well, here's the point. Nature is fallen. The world is fallen. And letting nature take its course in a fallen world is disastrous. So if, if you and your family, you say, my wife's health won't take another child. Our family of finances won't take another child. I think in that situation, using contraception is not evil. It's not uh, a lack of trust in God, those types of things. I think it's being wise. Now, if you go to the other extreme, say, I, I never want to have kids. I want to have a conversation with you about that. Because it seems to me that normally, when God calls you to marriage, He calls you also to parenthood. Now, there may be exceptions. There's some couples that are infertile and involuntarily. But normally, I think the office of marriage is coupled to the office of parenthood. And so, uh, th th that's something there. But how many? I think there's room for some human wisdom there. So, first reason why God made us male and female, a lot of procreation. But some marriages don't have children, infertility, and eventually, you know, you, you, your kids grow up and so you're not parent long time. There's another purpose for this, and uh, being male and female allows for not just procreative purposes, but unitive purposes. Now, if you have your Bibles and you can see them, look at Genesis 2.24, important verse for a number of reasons. But especially in terms of understanding the essence of marriage, Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now the, phrase, the verse begins, For this reason. What reason? Because God made them male and female. For this reason... We become so this is kind of implies from the beginning that marriage is between a man and a woman. We'll come back to that later on, but, but it says for this reason, and it says the two will become one flesh. Now, in marriage, we're designed for a union, the deepest union anyone can ever experience. And this is the distinctive. So what makes marriage different than any other relationship? One flesh union. Sexual intimate union. That's what marriage involves. And you have that with no one else but your wife. And so this is what marriage is for. Male and female allows us to experience this incredible one flesh union. And that's symbolic of the whole union that's made possible when a man and a woman come. Because they bring all these differences to the table. And the relationship is deeper and richer and fuller. But symbolized and made concrete um, by this one flesh union. So, so this is a very, very strong drive in us. And so let's think about it for a second. God gives us this drive for sexual union. 
And he says, only do that with your wife. And I think that's meant to push us toward marriage because marriage is good for us. There's a book called The Case for Marriage. And uh, the, the writers show that, that married men, they earn more money than single guys in the same job. Can you guess why? They work hard because they got to provide. Yeah. They're more conscientious and they're more uh, responsible because they're responsible for others. Married men are healthier than single men. Can you guess why? The wife says, yes. The wife says, yes, you will go see that doctor. Yeah. Or you're going to do what with your boyfriends? Yeah. Single guys do crazy, risky things. But when, when you're a married man, you don't do those things as much. So you tend to live longer. But also, married men are happier than single men. They like being husbands. They like being fathers. They say, this is a good deal. And it's also healthier for women. Almost like God knew what he's doing and making us with this drive to become husbands and wives. But we've kind of gotten around that because now most guys uh, can get sexual intimacy apart from marriage. So we've kind of been so smart that we've cheated ourselves of something very, very good for us. But this is God's purpose of procreation, unity. There's a third reason we often think about. I call this the kingdom purpose of marriage. So let's, let's think back to the very beginning before there was humans. God's saying, I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for his people. They'll be his church. What can I, I give people to understand the love Christ has for his bride, his, his people? I know. I'll make this thing called marriage. When they see husbands and wives, this is the picture of Christ and his church. And this is something almost every culture knows, every people. So there's a, a big illustration. So you, in your marriage, are meant to picture the world, Christ and the church. That's the kingdom purpose of marriage. So this makes what you're doing not just important for you and your family, it's important for the world to see Christ in his church. So these three things, procreation, union, picturing Christ, this is all for, for married people. How about the sexual uh, meaning of, of single people? Well, they still had those differences within them. So a single man talking to a single one benefits her. And vice versa, that they give each other a broader, deeper vision of what life is about because they have those differing modes of orientation. Uh, so and this is why God made us in procreation, sexual union, again, uh, the picture of Christ in the church, and then even single people enrich each other because they, they bring to the table a different set of perspectives, orientation, those types of things. Uh, so uh, that's kind of what and how, uh, what, what and why, we spend most of our time on how. How do we live out our maleness and femaleness? Well, uh, first thing, uh, I do want to make sure that we recognize most of Scripture is addressed to all of us in our common humanity. So men and women read the same Bible, and most of the verses are to us in our common humanity. So the same goal is for, for all of us, Christ-likeness. Uh, there are a few verses that speak to, to men as men, especially husbands and fathers, women as women, 
But the main thing, the major source and subject of Scripture is Christ's likeness, which is the goal for all of us. So I don't want to overlook uh, the, the great 90% plus of Scripture. You live at your maleness, femaleness, by following Christ, pursuing Christ's life. That's the goal for all of us. But there are some things that are particular to men and women. Uh, one is in terms of sexual ethics. Now, you are to use your male body to have sexual intimacy with only one person, your wife. If you have your Bibles, you can see this. You can see them. Look at 1 Corinthians 7 for a second. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Paul says there, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. So sexual immorality is sex outside of marriage, premarital, extramarital sex. Now, it's called different things. If it's with someone else's spouse, we call that adultery, prohibited in the Ten Commandments. If it's someone of the, the, the same sex, homosexuality, that's prohibited elsewhere in a number of places that we'll talk about. Uh, so this is the idea you have sex uh, with only one woman, uh, your wife, that's the, the purpose for those types of things. So you use your body in a pure way only to have sex with one person. And again, uh, Paul says, uh, this is important because it says later on, now some are called to singleness. And if they're called to that, they're called to celibacy as well. But Paul does say uh, that, again, if you can't control yourself, you should marry, better to marry than to burn with passion. So it's so a question what advice should we give to a young man who lacks self-control uh, but has having difficulty finding a woman who will marry him? What can we encourage them to do? So they're, they're a young man, say, I'm, I'm burning, I don't think God's called me to singleness, burning with passion, but Paul says, better to marry him. I want to, but I can't find a woman who'll say yes. Well, my advice Become a better man. If you're a fat slob, get in shape. Uh, uh, become more Christ-like. Uh, show the fruit of the Spirit in your life to where a woman would, would be attracted to you. So uh, those types of things. So uh, this is the first thing that applies to us as men. The issue of uh, maintaining your body, faithfulness to only one woman, or again, if you're single, Maintain your body in celibacy, those types of things. So this is the first thing that applies to us. But probably the thing where we think most about male and female is in terms of roles in the home and in the church. Now here we have an issue in our society that is quite controversial, even among Bible-believing Christians. And there are two major positions out there. One is called egalitarianism. And this says there should be no particular roles for men and women. In marriage, there should be mutual submission. Ephesians 5, 21 says, submit yourselves one to another out of fear for Christ. And so they say, within marriage, since men and women were equal, and they should be mutually submissive to each other. And those verses that seem to say something about different roles in the church, well, that was for back when women had no training, no education, unable to take those positions, they say uh, there should be no sex-based roles in the home or the church. And they think if we have those types of things, uh, we either undermine equality, 
of men and women. And we also sometimes may encourage bad behavior. If men are told that they're heads of their families, they can be abusive, domineering, hostile, those types of things. If they're only men in the leadership of the church, they can be involved in sexual abuse, as we've seen in recent years, horrifyingly. And so, and they say, better just make all the roles in the home and the church equal to men and women. Egalitarianism. But I think a better position is called complementarianism. Our roles are differing, but not unequal, because we can be equal and not be identical. So uh, which color is better, orange or brown? They're different, but one's not better than the other. And things can be different without being unequal. And so I think that's the case with men and women. And there are four key texts that I think show this. The first is Genesis 2.18. You probably know that. It's when God says about Adam, it's not good for men to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, this is a role given only to Eve. God never said, Adam, you'd be a helper to her. Well, no. Uh, he may uh, have some desire, but, but the role is different. So this is a role only given to Eve, and I think given paradigmatically to all wives. So there's a, a distinction in the home. The wife is supposed to be a helper suitable to her husband. That's, a, that's not a demeaning role, because the word helper is used most often for God. God's our helper. He's not second, subservient to us. He's not unequal to us. He's not that he's less than us. But there's a differing role there. And this happens, I think, especially in the home. So uh, Genesis, now this text is important because this is a pre-fall text. Because some say all this stuff of, of men being the head of women, uh, that's results of the fall. Because of the fall, men dominate women. But that's not God's intention. Well, this is pre-fall. So, so that's the first key text. The second, you're probably familiar with Ephesians 5, where Paul compares uh, Christ and the church to the husband. And as the, the church is submissive to Christ, so the wife is called to be submissive to her husband. Now, interesting, it doesn't say, husband, make your wife be submissive. Yeah? And it doesn't say that, it doesn't hint at that. It says, instead, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So what's that look like in real life it's a situation? So I, I spell love G-I-V-E. Give up your life, your preferences, your rights, your presumption, all these things, because that's what Christ did. He gave up his life for the church, those types of things. But this Christ-Church relationship is not mutually submissive, is it? Do we want Christ to submit to the church well, no, the church is flawed and fallible. And, and so, so there's a, a differing relationship there. And if this is the, the pattern, then husband and wife don't have the same role at all. Now, again, uh, you usually say, well, the wife's role is pretty tough there, being submissive to a man who is, not, is far, far from perfect. Eh? She's got to really trust God to submit to this man but I think on balance, husbands have the tougher role. You're called to live up to the example of Christ loving your wife. 
And that is self-sacrificing, self-denying, laying down your wife, those types of things. And so uh, this is a, a role the wife doesn't. She's never told, love your husband like Christ loved the church. No, that's the husband's role. Her role is different. Uh, so uh, in these two patterns, we see different roles in the family. Then a third text, not often recognized, is Genesis, Ephesians 6, 4, which says, fathers, bring up your kids, the nurture instruction of the Lord. It doesn't say parents, it says fathers. So men have a special responsibility in the raising of their kids. It's not to say, go ask your mother. Yeah. Their role is to take an active role, the, the primary role in teaching and training their kids. So how do you do that? First and foremost, your example. Live it before, they will see you and they'll know whether your walk with Christ is real or sham. Is it hypocrisy? It's a reality. And you can't, uh, you can say lots and lots of words, but if that's not, that life is not real, you'll not bring them up in the nurture instruction of the Lord. But then along with obedience, you are called to speak God's word to them. Your kids should hear you read God's word to them and explain what it means. Now you say, well, my wife's better at that. Well, get better. Yeah. Get training because this is called to you. Your kids should hear you pray for them, pray with them, those types of things. This is your call as a father, man. So these three uh, passages, Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, see, these all deal with roles in the home. There's one passage, I think, that's central to roles in the church. It's 1 Timothy 2. And again, I'll read a couple of verses here. And again, there are others that we could mention, but I think this is the central one. 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 and following. Paul said, I did a, a, a permitted woman to teach or some authority over a man she must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, but the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Paul said, I don't allow him to teach or some authority over a man. Now again, others will say, well, this was because she, she wasn't taught. No, it's because Adam was formed first. <laughs> so that the basis for this command is one that will be the same in every culture. One change, no matter how, what educational standards are, Adam will never be formed second in any culture. Adam will always be formed first. Now I will confess, I'm not sure why that makes a difference. Yeah. Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's why women should not teach, have authority over a man. Not sure I understand, but here's the thing. I don't have to understand to obey, right? For example, in the garden. Why were not they not to eat out of that tree in the middle? Fruit was ripe, wasn't wormy, wasn't green. Only reason God said no. Here, God says there's an order in relationships in the church. I'm not sure why, but God says this, and so I think there's something to this. So let's, let's, let's look at that phrase: teach or some authority. What does Paul mean by that? Because elsewhere he says, you'll be teaching one another. Is there a special type of teaching Paul has in mind? We, we keep reading, 1 Timothy 3 is about the office of overseer. 
Well, overseers must, when they're qualification, they must be able to teach. Huh. Maybe Paul is thinking the type of teaching that an overseer does, an elder does. So there can be casual one-on-one -on -one teaching when men and women can teach each other. But the, the office of pastor, elder, overseer, type of teaching that person does, type of authority that person has, I think Paul is saying that office should be reserved to men. So I think I'm pretty, uh, pretty confident that at least one thing in Paul's mind was the office of elder, pastor, overseer, that should be occupied by men. And so uh, that's how many of our churches operate that. Now, beyond that, I, I think there's room for discussion. So for example, offices like deacons, small group leader, uh, when you teach an adult co-ed class, worship leader, youth group leader, well, Paul didn't have in his church. He doesn't comment specifically on those. I think the question, to what degree does this resume, uh, resemble a pastor's office? If those are pastor-like functions, maybe the prohibition there goes for them as well. So, so this is in terms of uh, living in our maleness, differing roles, in the home, in the church. In the home, uh, husbands are to uh, love their wives with Christ-like self-sacrificing love, and they're to be the head of their families. They're to be uh, especially the, the teachers of their kids, bringing them up. And then in the church, there's she being male leadership in the pastoral roles, those types of things. And so I think these are some of the, the major things in terms of uh, living this out in the world. Let me pause for a second. Questions thus far? I can't see any hands there, so speak up if you have a question. If not, we'll move on to, to uh, responding to contemporary confusion over male and female in our culture. So what, you know, we, we're living in a situation where the Christian sexual ethic has been uh, largely forgotten, those types of things, and uh, we're having confusion over what it means to be a male, a female, all these types of things. Let me try to respond to several of these issues in our culture. And the first one I want to respond to is not one that gets a lot of press, it's the most pervasive sexual sin out there. Uh, the most pervasive sexual sin is not homosexuality, it's not adultery, it's premarital sex. In our, our, our generation, the idea that you should wait until marriage to have sex is, again, uh, largely ignored, even by Christian young people. Surveys said 80% of evangelical young people, 18 to 30, were sexually active. 80%. And again, I know Christian young people who are living together and not conscious that this is somehow wrong. They think, it's just sensible, right? test drive it before you buy it, yeah? And so they think about that. Well, this is, is a, they don't see why they should limit themselves or wait till marriage. Again, sex is fun. It's enjoyable. It doesn't cause emotional devastation or STDs. We can get away with those types of things. Hard to resist. And so why wait? Well, here's the answer. And here's what we need to, to teach very carefully. God gives us this drive to sexual intimacy to prod us toward marriage. He wants that drug to be satisfied in marriage to serve the purpose of symbolizing, cementing the oneness of a man and a woman in marriage. So here's the thing. Uh, sexual union is the cement of a marriage. 
you, you say, I'm only going to have sex with one person in the world, this woman. Let's think for a second, uh, again, how this would impact life. If this, this was widely practiced, only going to have sex with, with one person, that my wife, things like that, and never do anything other than that. Well, think about that. There would be no rape. There would be no adultery. And there would be much less divorce. Far fewer abortions, because married couples don't usually have abortions. Again, less poverty, because the most common poverty group, single moms. They wouldn't be single moms. They'd be married. Almost like God's sexual ethic makes sense. So here's what I want to kind of give an illustration if you're speaking to a young person. Uh, why should I wait? So I say, here's the thing. God's given you a gift. Picture that gift as a violin. You could say, it took me a long time to learn to play that. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to wait that long. I'm going to chop this violin up and roast marshmallows over it. I like roast marshmallows. That, that's just good. And you could certainly do that. Uh, violin will make good firewood. But what a misuse of a precious gift. To take the gift of sexuality, use it for purely physical pleasure, not for uniting yourself with one in a lifelong one flesh union. It's to take a violin, use it as Philip Kindling for roasting marshmallows. So uh, let's uh, explain to our, our young people and ourselves why God has this strange idea you should limit yourself to one person, that person being your wife in a covenant marriage situation. And this is something that is radically, radically countercultural, and yet I don't hear much about this. You know, we, we've, we talk a lot about so much sexuality and transgender, and we should, but what's getting most of our kids and most of our people they're likely much more involved in premarital sex or extramarital sex than they are in these other forms for a second. So this is the Christian sexual ethic. Uh, the reason why God limits this to one person, because he values lifelong marriage. And face it, guys, if the only place you were getting sex was your wife, uh, would you be failing or fooling around? Would you divorce her? No other possibility for sexual union. Well, marriages would stay together, I think, better. And that would be good for men and women and kids as well. Uh, so, so that, but then I do want to comment on the big issues in our culture, um, responding to the gay community. So what should you do? Well, I want to encourage you to know the arguments of those in the Christian community who are arguing for this. And there are churches out there that will argue that we should affirm people involved in same-sex relationships, same-sex marriages, uh, and these are wonderful, loving people. And, and how do they argue? Because they know there are verses in Scripture about this. Well, here's the, some of their arguments. If you're interested, there's a book by Matthew Vines, uh, God the Gay Christian. He's the most, most popular author on this topic. He says, those verses were written for those who are engaging in same-sex serial relationships. They're not involved in serious, consensual, monogamous relationships. They're, they're, they're satisfying their lust with multiple relationships. And Paul's against that. Or Paul's against Roman practices of a master forcing a slave or an older man forcing a younger man. And that's what's prohibited. Not a loving, consensual, committed relationship, they say. That's not what Paul's talking about. And Paul's talking about those for whom this is unnatural, but for some people, 
these things are very, very natural. So know what they're saying, know their ideas, but then I think that there's a three-pronged response to their argument for same-sex marriage. Now again, I begin with Genesis 2.24. We often begin with the, the, the verses that specifically uh, prohibit uh, same-sex relationships, but I think it's stronger to begin with the very foundation of marriage, uh, which says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, unite to his wife, to become one for Well, for this reason, because God made them male and female. Jesus quotes those two verses together in Matthew 19. God made the male and female, and this. So these two things belong together. God made us male and female for the purpose of marriage. So same-sex marriage does not make that. Second argument, if marriage is to picture Christ in the church, a same-sex marriage can't do that. It will have two Christs or two churches, not one Christ, and one church, so uh, same-sex marriage can't picture the purpose of the picture of Christ in the church. And then third, there are about a half a dozen texts that do prohibit same-sex relationship. If I were to, to encourage you to look at one, be Romans 1. So I'm going to go ahead and read a couple of phrases from that. Romans 1 is the only passage that mentions um, same-sex relationships among women. All the others had to do with men, but Romans 1 mentions both men and women. Beginning in Romans 1, verses 20 and 4 and following, and so we, we see this as the result of, of God giving people over to their desires. It says, Therefore God gave them over the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worship and serve created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. And here's the key phrase. Even women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. So here's the idea. And this is a very natural thing about men and women. They fit. They belong together. They're made to engage in one flesh union. Women are not, to, they, they can't do that naturally with each other. They're doing something contrary to nature. Now, uh, homosexuals say, but it's natural for us. Well, no, your body's not changed. The created design of your body does not permit you to do that. Uh, so again, this is our uh, argument with them. So again, uh, then go to, to these three things. Uh, um, the, the nature of marriage is, is granted in male-female relation. Genesis 2, can't picture Christ in the church. And there are prohibitions like Romans 1 and some other sects as well. So, so I think theologically, we have a good argument against same-sex marriage. But then, a second question, how to respond redemptively to particular situations, like when someone says to you in your small group, you know, I'm gay, how should you respond if someone comes out to you? In fact, it's interesting, I found it this week, October the 11th is coming out day okay, in the gay community. So what if someone says to you, I'm gay. Well, I heard one speaker make this suggestion, I think it's really good, say, thank you. I'm honored that you trusted me enough to, to, to share that with me. That must have been very hard. Tells me you value our relationship, that you would share that with me. I am honored. I'd like to talk more about that in terms of what that means for you when you like to talk about that. Because uh, here's the thing, you don't need to go any further than that. Because you've said, 
uh, I can still be your friend. We can still talk to each other. Because when they say I'm gay, they may be also be asking, can we still be friends? And you want to say, I'm honored. Because it would be hard for them to say that. Because they know you're a Christian. They know the, the Christian position on the same thing. For 2,000 years, it's been negative. So they know where you stand. Uh, so them sharing that, they're saying something. Can we still be friends? Now, if you talk to them and they say, I'm really struggling with same-sex attraction, that's one thing. The, the, the solution is, again, uh, prayer, discipleship, being with them, friendships. If they're saying, I'm engaged in a same-sex, that's another thing. Maybe having me a little bit more confrontation. But either way, say, your true identity is image bearer of God. For a believer, child, you're, you're, you're not gay. That's not your identity. That's something that you struggle with. That's not who you are. Who you are is image bearer of God. Uh, for a Christian, that's who you truly are. And so we encourage them to live in keeping with their true identity. Uh, let me move on. I'm about to run out of time. So there's just a number of things I'm still trying to get to. Gay wedding. If you get an invitation, friend, family member, gay wedding, how should you respond? Again, I'm honored you would invite me. That tells me you, you, you value me, you love me, and I'm honored. I asked to be excused because I could not rejoice at your wedding. I would be sad because you're doing something I think is destructive to who God wants you to be. And, and I, I wouldn't want to make others sad at your wedding. If I'm there, I'm going to be very, very sad. I don't think I should be there. But I do want to extend relationship with you after your, your wedding. I'd be glad to have you and your, your partner over to my house, and I want to continue that relationship. But please, uh, I ask to be excused from going to your I think that'd be the best re response to those types of things. What if your company has a gay pride week and you're asked to participate? Again, yeah, I love gay people. Uh, uh, they are image bearers of God, and they have respect and dignity for that reason, but not for their sexual orientation. I can't honor them for that. I can honor them as human beings. Now, again, that may not be uh, uh, adequate. They may be offended, but I don't, you can't say, I'm honoring you for your orientation. I, I don't think we can do that. Maybe some consequences there, but I think that may be what we have to, to accept. Well, so that's uh, homosexuality. How about transgender? Again, this is something more recent, just coming up. And again, I think I want us to think through three different groups within this umbrella. Some are political activists. They want to change laws and do all these things in the political arena. That's a small group. The largest group are people simply who are suffering with this conflict, what they see in their body, what they feel in their mind. And this is a very, very real conflict. I want to, don't want to minimize it. In, in these circles, these people, uh, they have a, a attempted suicide rate about 40%. This is how much they're hurting. So I don't want to minimize that. So there's a, a genuine conflict there. A third group is those who have already transitioned. I think our response is different to these three groups. To the first group, the political activists, those types of things, I think that calls for some calm reasoning with them. You say you think you're a woman trapped in a male's body. How do you know what it feels like to be a woman? You've never been one. 
So you have these differing feelings and they may be different than most men, but hey, you know, that's a woman. So I think there's some, just uh, um, some questions there. And then the fairness, especially for someone with a male set of lungs to compete athletically against a woman who does not have that set of lungs. So I think those things are just uh, pretty obviously unfair. So that's for the, the political. But for those who are experiencing this agony, and again, I don't know this, I just read, but they seem to be in a huge hurt. I can't imagine uh, feeling that my, when I, when I look at my body, I said, that's not who I am. I, I feel this disconnect between my mind and my, well, these are hurting people. And that is our compassion, walking with them. Uh, but I think we have to say, God gave you your body. You're to honor God with your body. You're to serve God uh, with your body. And if you attack your body, you can't do that. You can't honor God with your body while you're attacking. And here's the thing. Gender is something we don't get to choose for ourselves. And that's God's dealing. And again, that may make a very difficult situation for them. So we have to, to walk with them through that situation and be there for them with them those types of when things are very, very difficult for them. For those who have transitioned, we have even a more difficult question. They say, I used to be John, now I'm Joni. And I want you to call me she, not he. What you do, this person, and they've adopted a new identity. They see themselves as something. You look there, and again, and the body still looks male to you. Do you use their preferred pronouns and names or not? This is a, a tough thing for me, again, because I've heard that, that if you use what they see, see as their dead names, you cut off contact. And so some say we should obey the golden rule, do unto others, should have them do unto you, and so use their name. Others say, well, that's compromising too much. I will confess I'm not sure on this yet. I think I would probably go on case-by-case -case basis, and I will confess as well, I've had very little experience with transgender people. They're not that common, and I don't think I've ever had a lengthy conversation with one, but that will probably be changing in the near future as that becomes more socially acceptable. One final thing I want to respond to is our view of singleness. Now again, since the Reformation, uh, Baptists and Protestants have been champions of marriage. And marriage is the norm, what people should seek for. But God calls some people to singleness. Again, uh, one of my theological heroes, John Stott, uh, he said, God called me to be single. I had a very wide-ranging traveling. I couldn't have done that with a family. Uh, Lottie Moon uh, was single, those types of things. So God calls some people to be single. And I want us in our churches be aware of that and not to discourage people and that there may be a call for them. And I've heard that the fastest growing demographic in our churches is single people and they're largely unreached people group. Now in our area, see lots of young people there walking with Christ because of Southeastern and things like that. But in larger cities, mostly single people avoid churches like the plague. And some, some, even Christians, they will say, my church is family friendly, but single unfriendly. Okay. So what can we do that to be more welcoming to single people? I want to be aware of that. And yet, I still want to say in the end, the final analysis, I think we want need to encourage young men 
to get married. It's good for them. And again, there's a rising age of marriages. Uh, there's fewer people, people getting married. And so I think for churches to train and equip and encourage men uh, to be worthy of a woman and be a husband, I think that's the calling for most people, but at the same time making room for the exceptional person who is called a singleness, and especially if there are people same-sex attracted, and yet they say, I'm not gonna engage in that relationship. Well, they will be singles, and we need to support them in their single walk. Single walk. Well, again, I think we're about to the time we need to stop and have some, some Q&A. So, uh